course, the music scene, any scene you can think of pop culture related, that's Nick Thielen. And now, here's your host, Nick Thielen. Let the Inspiring Brains podcast begin! Good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Inspiring Brains podcast with Nick Thielen. Happy to have you along. Hopefully, you're staying safe and doing well. I'm excited to share with you today's episode number 42 of the Inspiring Brains podcast with my good friend Bob Palmer, also known as Flying Bob. He is a street performer, a circus act, and a street performer. Um, he's performed in uh, over 16 countries across the world, uh, juggled in the Great Pyramids in Egypt, as well as uh, done a high wire in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, if you want to find out more about Flying Bob, you can go to flybob.com and check out some of the clips there of his act and uh, what he does. He also uh, goes around to uh, different uh, schools um, in uh, Alberta, BC, and Saskatchewan. He's been doing that for many years, teaching circus camps uh, to kids and uh, kind of teaching the next generation of circus, circus performers. Um, and if you're in central Alberta, you might have seen uh, Bob. He is the head, uh, um, I guess he's responsible for a lot of the performers that come to Centerfest. He's actually the one that's responsible for bringing a lot of them in. Um, I don't know his official title, but essentially he uh, brings in a lot of the acts from all over the world to uh, Centerfest Street Performer Festival in Red Deer. And if that's something you've never been to, uh, it's definitely something worth checking out. Um, it's every year, usually in late July, and this is called the, the Centerfest Street Performer Festival in Red Deer, Alberta. Um, it's absolutely fantastic, and it's something uh, worthwhile for the whole family. There's uh, usually food trucks, uh, a bunch of entertainers, um, food trucks, face painting, and a whole list of other wonderful things. Uh, you know, a park for the kids, uh, and water, and all that sort of stuff. So it's a great thing. Unfortunately, this year, due to uh, COVID, we weren't able to have it. But I do expect it to be coming back uh, in the uh, coming year. So uh, looking forward to that. And uh, again, I really just appreciate doing this podcast because it allows me to do a kind of a deep dive into uh, some of these people. And one of those people is definitely um, Bob because, um, you know, I've always been interested in the world of street performing and what it's like in terms of uh, creating an act and uh, presenting it to people. Um, and, and what it's like, in particular, we, we kind of talked about the crossover between stand-up comedy and street performing and what it's like. You know, it's interesting that he mentioned uh, in the uh, recording, you know, he thinks that every street performer should do stand-up comedy and every stand-up comedian should try uh, a street performance, which I think is actually kind of true because I've done stand-up comedy on the street one or two times and it's a... Uh, it's a different animal, but, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely wonderful to, to try to, uh, you know, convince people to, to stop whatever they're doing in their tracks, turn around and pay attention to you. And if you can do that, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. 
especially, you know, if they're not necessarily interested, but you do something or say something that convinces them to uh, stop even for a few seconds and listen, uh, which is absolutely wonderful. We had a great conversation. We talked about some legends of uh, street performing that have also... Uh, you know, looked into now. Uh, Robert Nelson, the Butterfly Man, is one of those guys that uh, you can definitely check out. He's a, a legend of uh, street performing. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2012, but uh, definitely one of those guys worth checking out. If you want to find out more about Centerfest, you can go to centerfest.ca and check out the website, or just type in Centerfest Street Performer Festival into Google, and you'll find it. It'll be the first. Um, first search there, you'll be able to find that. So, uh, thank you very much to Bob for joining me. This is one of those conversations where we definitely could have gone much, much longer and chatted again, which we likely probably will do. So, I'm excited for that. It's a great conversation, and um, this is just, you know, while COVID was kind of going on. So, uh, you know, Bob is talking about how that all kind of affected him and his schedule and what's going on now. But he also kind of talked about uh, his, his plans for the future, and he talked about the uh, penny farthing bicycle, the giant, uh, the, the giant wheeled bicycles that you might have seen, uh, pretty historic bicycles with the giant wheel and the one shorter wheel in the back. Uh, he's he's creating an act uh, centered around just riding the bicycle and. Uh, it's quite a unique act as well. So uh, really appreciate Bob for his time and sharing his stories. And I look forward to having him on again and, and sharing some more stories from his travels literally all over the world. So thank you very much to uh, Flying Bob for joining me. If you're interested in finding out more about him, go to his website, flybob.com. You can find out where he's performing next. Of course, he performs uh, all over, but definitely... Uh, um, with Central Alberta kind of being his home, you can definitely see him soon in, in the Central Alberta kind of region. Uh, so I definitely recommend that and checking out some of his clips on there. Again, flybob.com, or you can find him on Facebook, uh, Bob Palmer, and uh, get in touch with him that way. Thanks again to Bob for joining me, and I hope you guys all enjoy this episode. Until then, uh, be kind to each other. Enjoy uh, the sun while we have it here in... Uh, in August, and uh, be kind to each other, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye for now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Inspiring Brains podcast with Nick Keelan. My guest today is Flying Bob, also known as Bob Palmer, and he is originally... He's from Southern Lake, but he was uh, born in Nova Scotia and grew up in Saskatoon, and now calls the Prairie's home. Uh, he was a guitar player in a band in high school, also taught school and coached as springboard uh, during that time. And he had also he had many real jobs, which never really stuck until he found the world of uh, variety performing calling to him. Since then, he's performed for the last 30 years and across uh, Canada and 16 other countries as a tight wire walker, comic, and musician at every stage imaginable and venue, uh, including uh, streets, uh, the stage, corporations, and national TV. 
at festivals that have taken place in Europe, Japan, Singapore, Australia, South Korea, Egypt, and the U.S., just to name a few. He has toured the Alberta, B.C., and Saskatchewan school system uh, extensively and performed at many outdoor and corporate events, teaching circus skills and circus camps. Uh, how are you doing today, Bob? Oh, pretty good. Uh, I should be out doing all of those things you mentioned, but uh, instead I'm just here hanging out at home. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, for a lot of us right now, it's a lot of uh, adjustment given what's going on in the world. Um, how has how has the events that are happening right now impacted what you do and your daily routine? Uh as far as my career goes, yes, it's wiped it out completely. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a performer. Uh, I do a lot of work in schools, uh, a lot of corporate events, a lot of outdoor festivals. And uh, that was all just perfect for the uh, coronavirus to eat up and spit out. So uh, I actually had a really great season booked uh, from like February right through to the end of August. And that has been completely flattened. So uh, uh, I've been trying to stay calm and not like throw things at the wall. But uh, I am enjoying the time off because I usually don't have this much time off. Uh, I'm usually out there just going full on teaching and performing. So uh, yeah. So, but how, can you tell me a little bit how you got into uh, performing in particular? How you got into the world of, of, of circus performance? Sure. Um, basically, I've always liked to learn new skills. So uh, I started out uh, playing guitar when I was younger, and I got into uh, like top 40 rock bands uh, in high school and afterwards. And uh, that was going to be the big performance career move. Uh, I was going to be a famous rock star. So uh, in Saskatoon, I was in anywhere, uh, like about 15 different bands. Uh, I played country, rock, old-time music. I was even in a reggae band, a reggae band, called <laughs> <That's stupid. laughs> uh, which was hilarious. We had so much fun, but I play, I played it all. Uh, I was even in one band where we had about 15 original tunes, and we were going to make it big, and it didn't happen, but I certainly had a love of performing. Uh, we could do a whole podcast, uh, just me talking about uh, being in a top 40 rock band in Saskatchewan. Uh, performing in every small town that existed. Uh, I've just got endless stories about that. Um, but while that happened, while that while that was happening, uh, I accidentally learned how to juggle. I saw somebody on TV juggling. And I thought, hey, cool, that'd be a fun skill to learn. And I learned how to juggle, and it was one of those, boom, mind blown. So I just got completely obsessed with juggling and then discovered unicycle riding, uh, fire eating, um, uh, circus, tight wire walking, slack line. Then I discovered there was a whole community of people doing that. And this was this was before the internet, way before the internet. And so I was down at the library, just devouring any kind of books on circus and juggling that I could find. And uh, then I got hired for a street fair, uh, the Broadway Street Fair in Saskatoon, and I discovered there was another juggler. I, I couldn't believe it. There was another person in Saskatoon who could juggle. So I immediately got a hold of this guy, and his name was James O'Shea, and he was an actor. And basically his story is very similar. He discovered juggling, mind blown, and just got completely obsessed with it. 
And it turned out we were both hired independently for this street festival. So, uh, and it was just, just like a, like a sidewalk festival. It's just, you know, all the vendors have their stuff out in the streets and everything. Yeah. And, uh, so we, uh, we got together and said, you know, God, we might as well just do a show together. And so we just kind of uh, pulled it together, you know, with, with no planning. We started doing it and we loved it. And, uh, I loved juggling. I was, you know, I was a, not a bad technician, but I didn't know how to perform. I didn't know how to be a character, how to develop a show or anything. James uh, had been an actor for many, many years, so he knew that. He knew how to present. He was an excellent improviser. So uh, I just soaked up all of his ability, and we just applied that to street performing. And we were just doing it in Saskatoon, and we were doing uh, birthday parties, and we were doing like parents' uh, Christmas parties. We'd get a recommendation from somebody's parent. So we'd go there and perform for their company Christmas party. And then we discovered the Edmonton Fringe. And we went, holy cow. And they, have, they allow people to perform on the street. So we went up to the Edmonton Fringe and just started doing street shows. And it was like that was the big revelation. That just changed everything. We discovered the world of street performing, which we didn't really knew existed at that time. And uh, that, that was it. The deal was sealed for me, baby. Is that show uh, strictly juggling, or was there other aspects incorporated into the show? Uh, it was pretty much a, a juggling-focused show, uh, but it was mostly on the comedy. You know, we were okay. we we didn't have a goal of being super amazing technicians, and that, that's the nature of street performing, as you know. It's all about interaction with the audience. Well, James, as an improviser and actor, he knew all about that having that connection with the audience, and. Uh, we just loved that aspect of it. So we would use the juggling and the circus as a vehicle to connect with the audience. And that's pretty much that standard description of street performing. But yeah, we, we would juggle. Uh, we would do a bit of acrobatics. He could stand on my shoulders and juggle. And uh, we would juggle fire. But again, it was mostly about the interaction between the two of us. Uh, somebody once described our show as James is the great concealer. He's the trickster. He's always playing characters and always hiding. And I was the great revealer. Um, I would know who people were and I could co connect with who people were in the audience and bring that into the show. So our two characters were opposite of each other, but they meshed together really, really well. And uh, like many duos, we got to the point where we could almost read each other's minds. If one of us suddenly came out with something that we'd never said before, the other person would know instantly how to play off of that and react to it. And we would develop a lot of our routines on stage. Well, that, that's just an amazing story specifically just because you said, uh, you know, you found another juggler in Saskatoon and uh, it's, it's rare that you hear like, you know, somebody that you're competing with that, you know, basically for, for shows and things like that, that you just work with them and, and that you, you learn with them and share techniques and skills and, and grow together so that's a quite an amazing story um, yep it, it was it was a lot of fun and then things just developed from there we ended up uh traveling all over the place we ended up doing a uh, un peacekeeping forces tour of the middle east as part of a big show tour we were over in the middle east for a month um and uh yeah we ended up performing together off and on after that for about 30 years oh, wow uh, our show broke up after about seven years, and then I decided I didn't want to quit. So I just changed. We were called Flying Debris. So I changed Flying Debris into Flying Bob. And uh, 
just had a whole bunch of ideas that I wanted to pursue. We also developed uh, the slackline routine together. So we did both start walking tightrope together. Uh, oh. We built our own rig, made it of two by fours and rope. Uh, it was incredibly dangerous. I can't believe, when I look back now, I can't believe we were doing it with such terrible equipment. How we didn't get killed, uh, I'll never know. Uh, but James would stand out on the middle of the rope, and I'd be on the other end of the tight wire, and we would pass six clubs up there, too. We would also both get on the tight on the rope together and walk back and forth. Uh, we did lots of insane stuff. And then, but did but, you... Uh, to, to talk about that a little bit, so you, you talked about absorbing a lot of the knowledge from each other and through uh, books and stuff like that. Did you ever go to any sort of, uh, go through any sort of professional schooling or training for that, or was it just something you learned and picked up as you went along? Yeah, back then, this was even before Cirque du Soleil existed. Um, I had no knowledge of any circus schools that were taking place in Canada. There may not even have been one. Um, and back then, you know, no internet, you just had to kind of, uh, search around. There was an, or there is still an organization called the International Jugglers Association. It's called the IJA. And, uh, I subscribed to that and would get the magazine delivered like every quarter. And that opened my eyes up into what was going on in the world. But no, there was no real professional training. Uh, we just absorbed any possible influence. Uh, one thing that was good about having that isolation in Saskatoon and not having any other influences, we just started developing our own stuff. Mm. And as a result, a lot of the stuff we developed was kind of different than what other people were doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's unique because you don't have any other prototypes to copy or any, any references, right? Yeah, exactly. So you just kind of pull it out on your own. So our show was never normal. Uh, you know, as far as then, when I, when I started discovering what the international street performing world was, um, I could see how what we did was different, and I was able to, um, you know, learn from that and just find out. We we'd already built our own structure. We had our own skeleton, our own format, and then just being exposed, we could take elements of other things and put them into our show, rather than being part of a style or a community. And growing up in that, and, you know, I think the tendency is kind of to, you all follow the same formula. And uh, I'm really glad that we never did. Uh, the other thing that really opened my mind was one year I went to the International Jugglers Association's annual convention, which was down in San Jose, California. So I went down there and I was surrounded by 300 other uh, jugglers, street performers, and circus people. And that was another mind-blowing experience because uh, right after that festival, I went down to San Francisco and went down to the Pier 39, which is one of the most famous, iconic uh, street performing venues in the world. And I saw a whole bunch of performers down there who were full-time performers. Uh, there was a group called the American Dream Juggling Team. Uh, there was Robert Nelson, the Butterfly Man. And there was a bunch of others. And these are iconic, legendary street performers. And I got to see them live when James and I were still just getting into it. So when I came back to Saskatoon after having that exposure, I was just on fire. So, uh, and so I mean, you, you performed in, in bands in school and then you started juggling eventually. But when did you realize um, that this is something you wanted to maybe try doing professionally and realize 
you know, this is something that uh, I can I can develop into a career maybe. Yeah, um, I didn't even learn how to juggle until I was 21. So before then, it was all the band stuff and rock and roll musician. Um, and at 21, like I said, I saw somebody on TV juggling and learned it. So when I talk about that experience, that was from the age of 21. And then by the age of, and I was already working at a normal job. And uh, I was working in a warehouse, uh, a book wholesaler warehouse. And I was there for almost 10 years. So all of the band and learning how to juggle and starting to perform as a juggler, uh, that was all a secondary thing. That was all like a hobby thing. And yeah. then at 27, uh, I was at a crossroads. Uh, I hated my job, and I just quit it. Uh, I, I couldn't stand it anymore. So I quit it, and I got another job, God, doing cold calling to try to sell people on business card printing services. Wow. That was even worse than the job I quit. And I remember sitting in my car one afternoon going, I can't do this anymore. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I just sat there and I went, well, what do I love? And they said, I love juggling and I love the performing. I'm going to go for it. So at 27, I quit that job and I made a commitment to go after being a juggler, a full-time juggler in Saskatoon, uh, like back in the 1980s. So uh, I will consider that a very brave leap, but it was kind of, there was no other choice. I really felt like my back was against the wall. I had no idea what I should be doing at this point in my life. So I decided to go for that. And uh, that was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. And over 30 years later, I'm still doing it. Well, exactly. Uh, so I wanted to ask a little bit, you know, you performed all over the place in, in many different locations. Uh, as a comedian, I kind of, to some extent, understand that. You know, I perform in a lot of uh, bowling alleys, you know, dive bars, uh, really weird and strange places, but I haven't done many, uh, I have done some street shows, but um, what's that What's that like? Uh, can, can you put it into perspective what it's like uh, from adjusting to like a, a street performance and say, or to say a theater performance? Hmm. Yeah, oh uh, boy, I could talk about that subject for a long time. Uh, just you mentioning like doing stand-up, in clubs and things. Uh, one thing a lot of street performers talk about, uh, every stand-up com comedian should do street, and every street performer should do stand-up. Yeah. And you really understand, like, uh, as a street performer, I like to hide behind my equipment. And I think uh, stand-up comics are like the bravest people in the world. You go up there with nothing, just you and your brain and you stand in front of a microphone. Uh, I get up there with a tight wire and a seven foot high unicycle and juggling clubs and fire and ping pong balls. And my comedy is around what I do. So I'm what, of course, I'm what's known as a prop comic, which is kind of uh, uh, a bit of an insult coming from stand up comics who are pure. They go up there with nothing, just who they are and what they think and what they say. And so you have no defenses. I can use circus equipment as my shield. If you don't think my joke is funny, well, hey, look at this great trick I can do with these juggling balls. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's an awesome way to deflect. You've always got a fallback position. However, 
uh, for a stand-up comedian to go on the street where there's no focus. It's completely, you're exposed to everything and you have no control over those things. In a comedy club, you can create the focus. You can turn the lights down. People buy tickets. Uh, you're on a stage. You're spotlit. The audience is in the dark. The folk, Everything is set up for the focus to be on your words. Yeah. In the street, there's nothing. You are battling everything. And that's where some of the best street performer stories are, is the battles between the street performer and the environment. Yeah, well, before, when I was asking that question, I was going to say that I have never really done uh, street performing before, but then I remember, uh, I think it was last year, yeah, last year that I was part of a, a comedy festival in Calgary, and the very first day of this festival, uh, the organizer kind of has a, he picks a couple of performers to do a show that is uh, like right downtown Calgary, like part of Calgary, uh, and he's got a banner that he sets up and a microphone, right? But you're literally, it was it was strange, but cool at the same time, too. And he was, it was literally just like, you know, two or three performers, and then he's giving away a couple of tickets or whatever. But uh, similar to what you say, like, it's it's so strange because in that particular instance, like, people are uh, walking through or cycling through, and, and they're on their way to work or whatever, or they're having lunch or whatever, and they stop. Sometimes they stop if you can get their attention, but at other times you're just, seems like you're like rambling to nobody at some at some point yeah but uh the, the wonderful part i loved about it i don't know i started it was it was so strange to me that and it's one of the things i've been trying to work on more is some crowd work so i just kind of like you know started make making some jokes about if somebody was riding a weird uh, motorcycle or was wearing a weird shirt you know I, i'd point out that person and be like hey you know you and, and kind of like you know, as soon as I'm, like, not really yelling, but as soon as I'm, like, pointing out somebody in particular, it makes them stop, makes people around them kind of pay attention. So it's definitely a different animal trying to trying to uh, perform on the street as opposed to, like you said, a, a, a specific venue or something like that. Exactly. Uh, as a street performer, you are responsible for everything. Right. So you're responsible for your costuming, the material. The performance, you have to provide the PA system, you have to create the audience, you have to tell them where to sit, uh, you have to keep them engaged and involved, and at the end of your show, you are also responsible for them paying you. Uh, right. You know, as far as being a comedian in a stand-up club, well, usually that's booked by an agent. Uh, the venue is owned by somebody. They provide a stage for you. They provide a microphone. They provide the audience. The audience has already paid to come see you. Uh, you've already had an agreement as to how much you're going to be paid. Uh, all of that is done for you. All you have to do is basically deliver the show. You have to show up and deliver. When you're a street performer, you have to do all of those things plus deliver your show. So, and you, you hit on the big one, is how do I attract a crowd? So the only way you learn how to do that is by doing it. And uh, there's a very famous, it's a cliche statement now. It's a cliche because it's true. On the street, your first 100 shows will suck. And yeah. there's no way around it. Uh, yeah, that, 
a lot of newbie street performers will go up to a veteran or a seasoned performer and say, hey, can you watch my show and give me some pointers and tips on how I can make it better? And the first answer to that is, how many shows have you done already? Uh, yeah, I've done about 20 shows. And the, the, the veteran will say, when you've done 100 shows, then I'll watch your show. You're going to learn more by doing those 100 shows than anything you're going to learn from what I can tell you. Yeah, and uh, that's partially true, I think, for comedy as well, is that, sure. um, is, is that you know, the first couple of years, you're literally, uh, I mean, especially the first, I, I would even say, well, sometimes they say five, but the first, like, two or three for sure are just, like, uh, essentially, you got to figure out, like, etiquette-wise, what, what's right and what's wrong, and then, of, of course, like, uh, of course, me first starting out, you, you start off with, like, obviously, like, easier topics that a lot of people talk about, like, you know, sex or drugs or whatever else, like, is going on at that time, and as you evolve, you kind of develop, you got these stories that you can tell about traveling on the road or personal life stories that you can, uh, that you can throw into your act, so... Yeah, a lot of it is just kind of yeah, like you said, like kind of developing your act and, and figuring it out as you go. Uh, right. But then again, it's and we have that same kind of thing where um, it's it's similar, I guess, probably to street performing, where I'll I will uh, send out. So, sometimes I've done it in the past where I've sent out a, a message to a, a comic or or a guest for a podcast, and you know, you just tell them where you're at in terms of things and. They may or may not respond, right? But uh, it's it's one of those things. If they do, you try and you know take into consideration what they're saying in terms of like maybe pacing or or the way you can deliver certain jokes or put more emphasis on certain words. But again, a lot of it, I think, is probably just uh, repetition. And uh, I think probably the the biggest learning experience for comedy for me in particular is the is the you know the the, I guess the club shows because I don't do those as often. But when you when I do the kind of the club shows, I get to also learn a little bit of like the the industry aspect and the the promotion of shows and what all goes on behind it. Right. So that helps me to better uh, promote and and better uh, market myself. So that's kind of how I try to look at it. But it's also one of those things I'm sure. Uh, as a street performer, like um, when I watch uh, a comedian, especially if it's a, if it's a weekend of, of club shows, that comedian, if you only see them perform once, uh, a lot of it will seem like spur of the moment uh, material. But uh, you know, it, it comes across that way. But it's actually it's a very practiced and, and regular thing. But once you see them perform like four or five times. It's interesting to see the little, the subtle differences and the the way they try a joke here or the way they try to do something uh, different in a certain set. Are there times when you're performing as a street performer and you've got like, say, three shows during the day um, and you're able to see different performers perform throughout the day? Can you notice like differences in, in a performer's act or do do they kind of adjust based on the audience, or is oh, it usually 100% the same? Uh, it really depends on the act. Uh, the acts that I like the most are the people who adapt and change their stuff. 
Uh, I know performers who have their act so perfected that it works for every audience. Right. So uh, pretty much I can see somebody 10 years later and they're doing the same act word for word because they perfected it. Um, I don't find as much interest in that. Uh, yeah. I want to see a, per a performer who knows their craft so well that they just do anything they want. Uh, yeah. they, they can kind of throw out the formula because they can do so much material. They can handle so many different audiences. They have like 30 different shows worth of material. And then they just instantly pick and choose from that vast storehouse. They, they can just pick and choose instantly what they yeah. need at any particular moment on the street. So uh, sometimes, and I know there's stand-up comics who do this too. You can uh, alienate your audience and then bring them back. I know there's uh, stand-up comics who like to do that. They right. like to go too far and turn the audience against them and then bring the audience back. And I know street performers who do the same thing. And I consider those kind of people masters of their craft. And they're fearless. They're not, you know, desperate to make the audience love them. Uh, and when you have a perfect show, you know the audience is going to love you every time. And then it gets down to what is your motivation? You know, do I want to be rich? Do I want to be famous? Do I want to have fun? Do I want to challenge things? Or do I want to do all of those things? Yeah. Um, and again, I'm really interested in the people who like to challenge the challenge what's going on. Uh, a, a, actually, uh, a, a stand-up comic I saw at a club in Whistler. I was street performing in Whistler one time, and uh, there was a club where there was a stand-up comedian, and uh, he clearly had enough material that he could do 10 hours on stage. And what he was doing is, you know, he, he kind of said, we're going to do an experiment. I'm going to keep drinking, and I'm going to drink until I get completely hammered, and we'll see where it goes. And it was absolutely amazing. So he was kind of performing. Maybe he's done this before. Uh, but, yeah, he would be drinking, um, you know, mixed drinks, cocktails. And then he started on wine. And he was drinking like a full glass of wine every 10 minutes on stage. And he got more and more and more hammered. And he got funnier and funnier and funnier. Uh, it, it was incredible. I don't think that's a great career choice. If, no. if, if, that, if that's your shtick, you're going to be dead by the time you're 30. Yeah. Uh, but that evening, you know what? And he wore us out. Uh, we thought, good. We, we, we had kind of this uh, uh, car accident mentality. Let's just watch this guy until he crashes and burns or he right. falls unconscious or he throws up on stage or he <laughs> stops being funny. Man, yeah. he mowed us down. I watched him go. He went nonstop for an hour and a half like this. And it was uh, stream of consciousness. It was jokes. It was set routines. It was reacting to the audience. It was dealing with hecklers. He was flawless. There was not a moment in that hour and a half that was not interesting or skilled or controlled, amazingly enough. And he wore me out. I, I had to leave. Uh, after an hour and a half, man, he was still going strong, and I was exhausted. I couldn't give anymore. Plus, I'd been street performing all day. But I just thought that was incredibly brave and foolish, and it's only eventually going to end in disaster. But yeah. that was a guy, though. He was jumping off the cliff, and I was impressed with his bravery. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I I'm kind of interested to to learn a little bit about the process of of crafting an act, like in terms of how that works. I mean, when I talk about that with a stand-up comic, you know, we talk about uh, writing process or the process that you go through in terms of uh, developing or, or creating new material, whether you write it down on paper or whether you record uh, your set or your performance, those sorts of things. But when you're uh, when you're a street performer, I'm I'm assuming you're um, you know you're picking up different uh, tricks or things that you could try in your show or 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 like uh, learning new skills that you can add or or an aspect to your act. But is there um, a certain process you go through in terms of crafting a show or uh, yeah, uh, th there's kind of a basic framework that uh, you can hang hang a show on. You know, so the skeleton is um, crowd gather, um, bringing in your audience, uh, do your easy, simple tricks first, build towards uh, your big trick at the end, uh, make sure the audience is aware that you're going to be doing a big trick at the end. Uh, again, in a club, they're there. You don't have to keep them. You don't have to draw them. On the street, they're ready to bolt any time something you do is not interesting. So you've yeah. got to constantly maintain, constantly keep the people focused on you and not on everything else that's going on in the world, even though you're out in the world. You build towards your finale. Before you do your finale, you do what's called the hat pitch, where you tell the audience, uh, I'm going to do my big trick, and after that, I will be passing my hat. And you use a lot of psychological tricks or appeals to emotion to get the people to stay and to put money in your hat at the end. And you explain why they should put money in your hat. Yeah. Uh, then you do your big trick um, with audience participation, if possible. Uh, street performing almost always involves audience participation. When that show, when your big trick finishes, you pull out your hat and you really hope that people come forward and put money in the hat, but you never stop talking. When your hat, when you have your hat, uh, you are still telling jokes, you're still entertaining them. Passing yeah. the hat is not an add-on to the show. It's not something that happens after the show is finished. It is a part of the show. It's an integral part of the show. Okay. So the entertaining of the audience continues even as they're coming up and putting money in your hat. Mm -hmm. So that's the basic framework. Uh, onto that skeleton, onto that framework, my ideas are, and this is standard too, but one of my biggest ones is if I have a new idea. Um, practicing an idea at home and getting it all worked out, getting the skill all worked out, is only the beginning. You will never, ever, uh, in my opinion, have a routine that you can practice at home, plug it into your show, and it works. That will not happen. Yeah. So what I found for me, and James and I both did this endlessly, and I think it's the best possible way, is come up with a new idea, a new shtick, a new physical skill, and just get it kind of worked out. You don't even have to have it worked out perfectly. You don't even have to have jokes for it. You don't even have, you just even have to have a structure. And what mm -hmm. you do is you do that new thing at the beginning of your show. It becomes something you do as part of your crowd gather. 
that new trick is at the beginning. Your okay. best honed material is near the end. If your opening routine, if your opening trick doesn't work, it doesn't matter. Then, then you go to your, your B material or your C material. Then later in the show, you're doing your B material. And at the end of the show, you're doing your A material. And they've completely forgotten about this half-assed routine you did at the beginning. But if you keep doing that, that half-assed routine gets better and better and better. So maybe you've done that half-assed routine 20 times. And now it's working. People are laughing. They're enjoying the routine. They're impressed with the skill. But by that time, you've also got some new ideas. So that idea now moves its way into a, a later portion of the show. And you replace it with yet the new idea. So, that new idea is no, so that, that's the wonderful thing about street performing is you are allowed to workshop material in front of the audience if you do it at the beginning of your show or if you do it while you're still gathering your crowd. The pressure is off. You can fool around with the routine. You can do anything you want with it. And that frees you up. There, there's no repercussions for that routine sucking. Because they won't remember it. And then as it gets better and better and better, you push it further and further into your show. If you continue that process for years, holy cow, man, you have a, got a great show. Is uh, recording your material or recording your show uh, an aspect of it that is recommended when you first start? Or is that not really something that happens? Like, Sure. Um, I've done that. Um, I guess it depends on, how, how, on your style. If you want to you know, craft you, you can write down your ideas. There was a street performer, Robert Nelson, the butterfly man, who said the difference between an amateur and a professional is a $2 notebook. Oh, wow. Yeah. Makes Anytime sense. you've got a great idea, you write that, write that MF down. Get your ideas down. I know performers who have got stacks. Well, like stand-up comics. We've got stacks and stacks and stacks of books of ideas. Right. So that's all. Because I can't tell you how many times it's happened where I've done a street show Everything is clicking. Something amazing happens in the show. Or you react to something unexpected, and what you've said in that reaction is killer. People love it. By the end of the show, you can't remember what you said. Right. That's exactly so, of course, it. But you also have to be disciplined. You're going to record hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of material. Are you going to sit down and listen to those hours and hours of material, and then write down uh, that one line that you said. You know, you'll have to listen to hours of material. Maybe you'll get one or two lines out of that. You have to be disciplined to do that. I would kind of do that. Um, I was never disciplined enough. I've forgotten probably more lines than, than I know. Yeah, so, and uh, I think that's one of the beauties of this, uh, this quarantine time, even though, you know, some people are looking at it kind of negatively. Um, I know for me, I was planning to record a uh, like a first like half hour album in uh, in April, the end of April here, actually uh, this upcoming week. But of course, that's postponed. So I've been listening to a lot of uh, podcasts and actually been going through the entire show that I had planned and uh, writing it out like word for word, so that I can. Uh, figure out are there words or things that I don't necessarily need or ways that I can make this better or add certain little tags or jokes in to improve it. And also been going through my my phone where I record a lot of my material and I also, you know, will just uh, 
especially if I don't have a pen or whatever right away, I'll sort of blab an idea into my phone right. and uh, save it for later. So I've been going through all these recordings to decide whether or not this was an actually good idea or whether it was, wasn't was very good and just kind of uh, developing it. And then uh, there have been a few like online shows and things like that. So, I mean, I think it's all in terms of, in terms of the time we're going through right now, I think it's all kind of how you look at it and what you what you want to do at the time. Uh, yeah, it's up to you yeah. what you want to do at this time. Um, if some people are super busy, like before the quarantine, if you were just working nonstop and you, you're completely burnt out, man, just use this time to relax and recharge. Okay. Well, I do find my best ideas come when I'm busy. When I'm always working, always doing stuff, it's kind of like your brain gets tuned into that. And um, ideas come fast and furious when I'm busy. They don't yeah. come as fast now when I'm relaxed. But being relaxed and not busy is where many more brand new things come in, completely different directions come in. And I'm enjoying that part of it. Great. Well, you mentioned uh, having performed uh, for 30 years and uh, over like 16 countries all over the world, as you mentioned. Um, what what for you uh, stands out as your uh, your moment that you're most proud of in your career so far? Or are there a few that you can mention? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few uh, for different reasons. Um, making a really good connection with Japan is one of the things I'm, I'm most happy with. Um, I love, I performed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows in Japan. I learned how to do a show in Japanese. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that's another whole topic we can get into. Uh, I won't get into it too much here. Uh, a lot of performers, when they go to a country which uh, has a different language, they try to get their show translated into that language. Yeah. That almost never works. Right, and that's exactly, I, I talked to with some comics about that is, that's maybe something you can elaborate on a little bit too is, you know, having to change your show to adapt to a different language because that was going to be one of my other questions. Yeah, and I don't think, yeah, I think you have to change. And so I would do it, like every performer, uh, I translated my show. And it, it would kind of work, but kind of not. And again, uh, when I was in Japan, I was doing like three shows a day Six, six or seven days a week for week after week after week after week. And I had a liaison person with me who, who was a Japanese guy who could speak English and Japanese. So we would just try stuff. I'd come up with an idea. Now, here's what I want to do. How do I say this? And the thing is, if the audience doesn't understand er, the point or it's not funny, they're just not, going to re they're just not going to react the way you want. So you get instant feedback on whether or not what you've said makes sense or is funny. And what I eventually learned was the skills can remain the same, but what you say while you're doing those skills change. So actually, I just got rid of all my verbal. I got rid of all my text, and I just started rebuilding the routines. I would just start doing the routines silently and then just see what they found interesting, and then I'd find a way to comment on that. And uh, actually, I re there's routines that I do in my Japanese show that I've never, ever done in English. Yeah. Because the whole routine was built around a Japanese audience with text that works for a Japanese audience. And that, it, that also involves, you know, the, the two cultures. Me as a street performer who doesn't really understand Japanese performing in Japan for Japanese people. 
Well, just forget about all the English material that you do with that routine. Uh, yeah. Write something which reflects where you are now. And you've, again, you've got to be willing to make mistakes, to fall on your face, to have a terrible reaction, but you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And you slowly accumulate all these single words or a little phrase or the situation that you know you accidentally discover works. Remember that and make sure that's part of the show next time. So as far as being something you uh, are proud of accomplishing, I would say that learning how to do a really good, really funny show in a foreign country. But be in the moment. Don't take something that you had before you went to that country and try to shoehorn it into that culture. Mm -hmm. I think that that's you're, you're wasting an opportunity to learn something new about where you are and to learn something new about yourself and to learn something new about your show. And so that's always been one of my greatest experiences is working with a new culture and making your show work by having to change and adapt. Great. But that's something you mentioned too, is that, uh, you know, uh, having the, having the translator there or the interpreter makes a lot of sense too. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily work for comedy, but I like it in terms of the sense that this person who's your interpreter understands the culture and, and knows kind of the slang and what kind of jokes and things would work in that culture, right? And well, it, what, it just, it, what is appropriate and what isn't. Right. And now, just to be clear, uh, the interpreter was not interpreting during the show. Right, right. Yeah. He, that was just before the show or after the show. We would well, discuss what worked. He said, you know, that thing you said uh, at this one point, like uh, you said the right word, but that's not how we use it in that context. So then we would figure out what the proper context is for that word. And then I would go out next show and do that. Right. And so you start with something and you just keep honing it and building it and remolding it until it works. And so you're right. Having that interpreter, uh, again, it's not really an interpreter. We, we would just work on materials together. And I'd tell him what I wanted and he would help me get there. So, uh, and as a result, we became really good friends too. So. What are the what are the accomplishments and things that you've done that you're most proud of? I mean, like I it, I know you you uh, did a the longest uh, tape rope walk uh, in the world in uh, Seoul, South Korea, and uh, I know you also uh, juggled in the pyramids of Egypt. Uh, are there any other highlights in terms of your travels and things that stand out for you? Uh as far as an experience goes, yeah, those are the big ones. Walking the high wire in South Korea was certainly something I'd never done before. And uh, there's a lot of things I had to overcome to do that one. So uh, that was just pure technique. So, but it, that was really, really fun. Um, uh, again, uh, as far as actual experiences go, um, I, I think those, those are the major ones. Uh, one that I was very proud of early in my career is uh, in Saskatoon, they had a Canadian Liberal uh, National Leadership Convention. Mm -hmm. So all the premiers and all the liberal, liberal higher-ups were in Saskatoon for a convention. Yeah. I was hired to do their after-dinner entertainment. So I was really, really nervous. And yeah. uh, so I was working on, now, what material? So I, I was writing jokes. 
and trying stuff. And I kind of came up with a format that I thought would be appropriate. And then I got up there and just started doing it. And uh, I was teasing them and making fun of them. And I'd written a couple political jokes. And just somehow everything clicked. And uh, so this, and I think their expectations were pretty low. Uh, in Saskatoon, there's a little juggle boy who is going to entertain us. And we're from Vancouver and Quebec and Toronto and Ottawa. And uh, so I think their expectations were pretty low. I was something they were going to have to sit through and endure. And I killed. Uh, I was constantly surprising them. I was, I was uh, doing, I was poking fun at them. I had some political jokes. And at the very end of the show, I hit them with my big zinger closing joke, and uh, I got a standing ovation. Wow. And I walked off, and they were still clapping when I was already backstage, and I came back out. So uh, that was certainly a highlight, because I knew expectations were low. I didn't know if I could handle this, and I killed. So uh, I was pretty pleased with that one. Yeah, and uh, I mean, when you, you started... When we started talking, you mentioned uh, working with your other partner there in, uh, in Saskatchewan when you first started. But are there any particular people uh, that that you had that were uh, inspirations or idols for you when you were going through the process and uh, throughout your career, people that have helped you get to where you are now? Yeah, I, I would definitely say, just to finish off that thought, uh, James O'Shea, my juggling partner, he taught me pretty much everything about how to do comedy, about timing, about focus, about interacting with the audience, about uh, improvising and everything. So I would say he was definitely my major influence. And uh, I was just very, very lucky enough that he was my partner for you know, like 20 years. Yeah. Uh, as far as inspirations, um, yeah, just getting out into the world and going to street performer festivals. I've performed at hundreds of street performer festivals all over the world. And uh, there are people out there who I admired just unbelievably well. Uh, a very famous street performer is, uh, he's no longer here. He, he passed on a number of years ago, was Robert Nelson, the Butterfly Man. Yeah. Um, I encourage anybody to look up look him up and watch his videos and watch what other performers say about him. So his style was very, he, he had a character which was very antagonistic. Yeah. He would insult people and yell at them and he was nasty. But what came across was all of this was bluster, covering up his total insecurity about yeah. his abilities and who he was. So his character covered up for that by just yelling and insulting everybody. And people got it. And they loved him. I, I talked to so many people that Robert Nelson, the Butterfly Man, was their favorite street performer of all time. So his style, his style was fearless. Uh, uh, this performer then that is this beautiful butterfly, but insults and yells at people. That's that's a nice contrast. Yeah. Well, the reason he was called the Butterfly Man too is the top of his head was bald. And uh, he had a great big butterfly tattooed on the big bald part of the top of his head. Okay, okay. But you're right. If somebody doesn't know who he is, and we're going to go see the butterfly man. Ooh. Yeah. And, uh, and then he goes out there, and nobody could control an audience like Robert Nelson could. 
with that character. And like, again, he was fearless. There are endless stories about him uh, getting himself into like really dangerous situations and yeah. talking his way out of them. Yeah. And again, he was one of those people who would do that intentionally. But it wouldn't just be alienating the audience and then trying to get them to like you again. Uh, he would actually put himself in physical danger on the street. And then he would talk his way out of that. So, again, uh, there are street performers who are just absolutely fearless. Because on the street, if you're going to do that, uh, the situation is not controlled. Uh, um, and if you incite things, you know, you are putting yourself at real serious risk. And, uh, you know, there, there are uh, uh, one of the most famous street performing venues in the world is uh, the Fountain in Washington Square Park in Manhattan. And I've been there. Uh, I've never performed there, uh, but I've seen many, many street performers, many of whom are, are good friends of mine who have performed at that fountain. And uh, in those days, that was the Wild West. You sometimes would have to have fist fights with other performers. Because somebody wouldn't want you to perform. They wanted to control that spot. And you say, no, I want to do a show. And you would get into altercations. Like you'd go and you'd have a fight, like a physical fist fight. The winner of the fight could do the show. Uh, and New York audiences are notoriously hard-ass audiences to perform for. So I watched performers there. Uh, one performer, Will Lee, Master Lee. I, we could do a whole podcast just on Master Lee. Uh, I would watch him do, he was a good friend of mine, and uh, I would watch him do shows there. And his control of the audience and his, you know, his, his reading of the audience was just off the charts. I've never seen anything like it. So Master Lee, uh, again, another name to look up, uh, huge influence. Uh, and on a, on a technical level, uh, there is a juggler uh from the west coast of the states his name is charlie brown charles brown and uh he is a juggler a box juggler a comedian he was just hard, super nice guy but his skills were just monster and uh i've got a great story about him too uh but uh, his skills were just off the charts awesome but he would be so relaxed. He would do everything like he wasn't even thinking about it, like he was doing his taxes in his head. His his motions were just fluid and relaxed. He was funny, but his skill level uh, with hat juggling, with balls, with clubs, with torches, um, his you know his choice of props was very standard. But the way he presented it and the way he performed uh, was just an absolute inspiration. He was everything. A street performer could be. Uh, one of his major skills was uh, a particular prop called cigar boxes. And he was just a genius with his cigar box routine. Uh, his show was always the same, but just the way he presented it was different than a lot of people that I've seen. And he was a huge inspiration to me. And uh, he made me work 10 times harder on my cigar box routine because I wanted something close to what he had. And I ended up developing a cigar box routine, which was different than anything anybody else was doing in the world. And I was quite proud of it. So I would uh, consider him a huge inspiration for me to develop that routine. Wow. Um, so I'm always interested to, to learn um, and ask people, is there, some, is there anything you wish you knew uh, starting out that you've learned now over the course of your, of your time uh, performing that you can share? Hmm. 
I don't know. Uh, I would say just getting out there and doing it is the number one thing. And you make your own mistakes and you learn your own lessons. Right. Um, if I could go back and do it all over again, yeah, I don't really know how much I would do differently because I was really happy with the way it all turned out. Are you learning? Yeah, I'm trying to think if I'd go back. Oh, I guess one thing I would have done is I would have started it much sooner. Right. I didn't even learn to juggle till I was 21. I wasn't really doing shows until a bit later. Um, I think I could have accomplished a lot more if I if I discovered it earlier. But then I discovered so many other things that I'm happy with. Maybe maybe it was just its time. But I would really say, you know, if there's something you really want to do, get into it as soon as you can. And I would probably say too the I'd like to ask, um, you know, the fact that you were in all these bands and doing all these different things. Um, of course, then you're more comfortable with performing and and the interaction with the audience. I think those elements, you know, they help to to uh, probably help you out now in in terms of when you're performing. Like, uh, yeah, uh, there's a, there's a few comics, uh, um, Ali Hassan, who's pretty well known from CBC, and a, a few other comics that I talked to. That, for example, you know, they didn't start till, uh, you know mid 20s or 30s or later at some point and uh in some ways i kind of uh, admire some of those comics uh a lot because they prefer for us when we're first starting out we have to kind of find our voice and, and develop our our stories right and we're we get a lot more like especially when you're first starting out of course the easy topics and things are always uh, sexual or, you know, uh, there's a lot of, like, people that, of course, you know, you're nervous, you swear more, those sorts of things, uh, but there's, like, if you've got, you know, that some stories to share from your life or uh, things like that, then you're, you've got a different starting point, right? So you, you, you can kind of avoid that, I guess, and have more of a message and more of a... right. And uh, an idea of, of of where you're going, as opposed to needing to figure that out in the first couple of years. Um, That's true. Yeah, you could, yeah. You, again, like you said, you've got all that material to draw off of, and uh, you know, if you've been out there in the real world with normal jobs and uh, normal experiences, in other words, you you actually have real world experience with the the, the nature of your audiences. You yeah. under you're not just you you know about these things. You've lived through them, you've experienced them, and you have that connection with your audience. And you can authentically talk about those things with an audience because you're there. So I, I agree with that. That I think that's ha having a really strong basis. Uh, when you start performing at a later age, you have that as an advantage. So that must be kind of a nice um, uh, progression then, especially knowing like when you first started, there weren't any uh, circus schools or performers doing it a lot, but now uh, you're going into the school system and uh, teaching courses or, or at, um, you know, when you're at a, at a festival, you're sometimes give you the schools and things like that, so it must be nice to be able to sort of mentor and teach that next generation of, of street performers. Absolutely. Um you know, I do a lot of work in schools, but I have worked uh, with a lot of people 
uh, on like busker training programs or, and, uh, I've had a few people go on. Um, I did a school show in a small town in Saskatchewan, uh, a million years ago. And a kid in the audience in this little school came up to me and said, you know, I really like what you did and I'm going to be a magician. So I just talked to him about all my experiences and stuff as being a juggler and this and that. And, uh, he ended up becoming a juggler. He ended up going to the National Circus School in Montreal. He ended up forming a duo with uh, a European performer. And they ended up touring all over the world for many, many years. And he's now married and living in uh, Madrid. Wow. So he was just a, a young kid who got inspired by me. Uh, again, doing a street show in a tiny, no, not a street show, a school show in a tiny little town in Saskatchewan and he went on to do even more than I've done um, actually in another little experience like that like I think you never know what influence you're going to have on people uh, unless you just get out there and do it uh, and uh, one time I I, I kind of got my own performance uh, I just contacted an agency in England uh, the name of the street they were, they were a street performer agency and they were called Fool's Paradise, which I think is a great name for uh, uh, an agency. And uh, I, we had a few connections. So I just called them and said, I'm going to come over to England and I want you to book me. I'll pay all my own expenses, but just put me on your roster and I'll do whatever booking you get for me anywhere in England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, Europe, whatever. Okay. And so I, went over there, I went over there. I bought a car. Uh, I brought all my props. And I just drove all over the country, and yeah. uh, I, I took my car over the ferry over to the uh, over to Europe, and uh, they just booked me to to whatever whatever I could get. And uh, damn, I had a point. I had a point with this, and then I, then well, I lost track of it. Well, the, from your story, I kind of gathered uh, uh, and, and and thought of another question. I mean, I, I know you performed a lot internationally, and maybe your thought there was. In terms of expanding from, uh, you know, Canada to uh, outside of Canada, and how that process went, right? Because for me, as a performer, I've only uh, performed, you know, Western Canada, BC, Alberta, um, and I, you know, that's one of the biggest things is, you know, you don't have have that reputation, or, or you know, in other parts of the world yet. So I guess it's just, uh, you know, that that process of, of, of figuring out how to how to get to the other side of the world and be able to get to as many different countries is definitely a, one that's yeah. interesting. So, yeah, um, and your, Europe is pretty open for that. Uh, there are street yeah. performer festivals all over the place. So if you want to do it, all you have to do is go there. Right. And like I said, I did, I did shows in Amsterdam, Austria, France, England, Wales. Um, all over in Belgium, and uh, yeah, it was fun. I just had a blast, and I've got I I had all sorts of problems and mistakes and adventures and everything, but uh, it was just an incredible learning experience. And you just you just got to get out and do it. You just go out there. And when uh, when you uh, perform at, at at places like this, is it is it all uh, variety acts and things like that, or is it is it uh, musicians or or bands and things too? Like that, really, that are busking. 
you know, I really depended on the festival. Um, a lot of the ones I did, it would be a combination of busking and being paid. Uh, Europe has much more respect for street performing than North America does. And a lot of the festivals would be hugely subsidized. And a lot of the performers would be subsidized, too. There were lots of great experimental theater groups that came out of France. And uh, they would have these monster productions, which were street shows. But there's no way that they could make a living just passing the hat. So they'd be subsidized to perform these shows. So like you said, it would be a combination of these big street theater spectacles, uh, street performing like me, and musicians and everything. So uh, that was the wonderful thing, is it wouldn't just be a small street performer festival. It'd just be a whole mix of really bizarre stuff, really normal stuff, but always fascinating, interesting stuff. Yeah. So kind of my last question here for you is, are there certain things that you're working towards in terms of uh, like future goals uh, um, or, or things that you're looking at in terms of further developing uh, your show or your career moving forward? Yeah. Um, my show, uh, in one form or another, I've been doing for a long time. So I'm not as interested at this late stage. Uh, I, I'm actually looking at reducing the amount of performing, and I'm just I'm just trying to explore other areas. I'd like to get more into a bit more into writing, and writing right. comedy and telling stories. And uh, I still work on my show, but I don't really work on my show in terms of creativity outside of the show. Right. Uh, I more work on it while I'm. Do- I, I I know the structure of my show so well that I'm really interested in just experimenting with the show while I'm doing it. You know, playing yeah. with the timing, coming up with new ways to, new things to say while I'm doing my routines. Mm-hmm. Uh, developing physical routines takes many, many, many years. So I don't know how interested I am at this point in spending 10 years working on developing a new skill and then putting it into a show. Uh, right now, I'm 63 years old. So I have less interest right now in debuting a brand new skill when I'm 73. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Um, if, you, if you're 18, yeah, you'll work your ass off to develop a skill. And by the time you're 28, you've got this amazing trick that uh, everybody wants to see. And you've got many years to perform that trick. Um, at this at this point, I'm maybe getting a little less interested in the physical skills and more interested in character development. Uh, I'd like to, if I'm going to keep doing my show, uh, maybe I'd like to do a show where I don't talk at all. I'll have a completely silent show. Or maybe I'll have a show that I can carry in a suitcase. Right now, I need a cargo van to haul my show around. Oh, wow. Uh, and yeah. I do a tight wire routine. I don't know if the people listening are familiar, but I do a tight wire routine where uh, the finale is I put on a suit of clothing. The suit of clothing gets tangled up in the tight wire, and I fall. And I drop headfirst towards the ground. My pants fall off, and I'm left hanging upside down from the tightwear with my mm-hmm. pink uh, Hello Kitty boxers exposed for all to see. It's yeah. an incredibly physical routine that took me over 20 years to develop. Um, I may, at 63, I may be coming to the end of the shelf life of that routine. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I don't feel like walking on a high wire when I'm 68 years old. and not having the physical skills to do it like I did when I was uh, 26. Yeah. 
when I fell off, if I fall off when I'm 26 years old, I bounce. When I fall off at 68, I shatter. So yeah. <laughs> I have no interest okay. in falling off, getting seriously hurt, and then never recovering for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, I've been there. I've done that. I've, I've had bad accidents where it's taken me years to recover. Yeah. And that's another whole podcast. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm interested in, well, and what's always worked for me in the past is just to go with gut feelings. Yeah. If it's something I'm pure, I'm interested in just because I'm interested in it. I don't have a goal. Hey, if I learn this skill, I'm going to make so much money. Uh, if I learn this skill, everybody's going to love me. Um, I don't have any interest in that. Um, yeah. I'm just going to find something that I think, I go, wow, that is so cool. So I'm going to go after that idea just for the pure interest in doing it. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that, that's all I'm really interested in at this point. And if that routine turns into something which people, other people will like, and if it turns into something where I can make money, woohoo, bonus. Mm -hmm. But uh, for instance, uh, two years ago, somebody gave me a penny farthing. One of the giant old uh, bicycles with the gi huge, gigantic wheel on the front and the tiny little wheel on the back. Wow, yeah, yeah. And that was given to me. Uh, somebody just didn't want it anymore. They said, here, do you want this? And I said, yes. And so I thought, awesome. And I learned how to ride it. And it was a blast. And it just turned out, of course, people like it because you don't see those things anymore. So I developed an act. I, I did designed a costume. I developed an act. And uh, I haven't had too many bookings with it, but I've, I've been hired to do it. And I'm called the high roller. So That's awesome. I'm going to be an old dude riding one of these ancient bicycles. Perfect. Yeah, There's but, a routine I can do when I'm 85 years old. The older and weirder looking I get, the better that routine's going to work. Yeah. So. That's, that's amazing. Well, I know if people want to find more out about you, they can go to flybob.com. Uh, but is there any other uh, social media or any other things you'd like to promote? I know you've got a YouTube channel as well. A bit. Yeah, I've got some stuff on YouTube. Uh, there is, you just look up Flying Bob and dig around the Internet. But if you go to my website, flybob.com, you can see lots of videos of stuff I'm doing. Uh, there's videos of stuff we haven't talked about. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I've got a Facebook page. It's just Robert Palmer. Uh, if you want to be my friend, yeah. sure. And yeah. uh, on Facebook, I love using Facebook just to write jokes. So if I come up with a weird thought, uh, I'll put it on there, and then I'll edit it and re-edit it and re-re-edit it and uh, just see what people's reaction is. Yeah. Uh, I don't really care if people like me or not, but I find Facebook is just a wonderful place to throw out ideas and work on joke writing and comedy writing and uh, get into really weird discussions with people. So. Uh, totally. Well, just by this conversation we've had, I can tell you've got a lot more uh, great stories to tell and, and to share. So I'd love to have you on again in the uh, in the future if you're interested, and uh, and um, maybe next time we can uh, meet and do it in person when this is all over. That'd be great. I'd love to get on and just tell stories, anecdotes yeah. of uh, weird stuff that's happened to me and weird things I've been part of. Telling stories would be really fun. Absolutely, there's yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. A, the first thing is it's a, it's a lot of fun for me, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 to me, it holds a tremendous amount of value to be able to hear these stories from other people and, and just to, to, to build a relationship with them. So, yeah, it's been, it's been great, and that's one of the wonderful things, I think, you know, we're all talking about, you know, the negative stuff on the news and all the things that are going on, but, uh, 
you know, one of the silver linings of this is that I've been able to talk to some comedians and some amazing people who would normally be booked all year. So, right. So yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I just wanted to say, I really appreciate your time and, uh, hopefully we will be able to, uh, to touch base in person again soon. Uh, I'd love to. And you know, I've got time.